0: This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. This week, Adam Gentleson. He was deputy chief of staff for former Senate Democratic leader Harry Reid of Nevada. He argues in his new book, Kill Switch, that the modernization of the U.S. Senate is damaging American democracy. He's interviewed by Wall Street Journal congressional reporter Christina Peterson. Adam, I know that you were a longtime staffer for former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. What in your experience working in the Senate caused you to want to write this book?
1: Well, it was really the whole experience um, of having spent time there and having the institution uh, just appear very different in the way it worked day to day from what I'd read and what I'd expected and what I'd learned to expect from the Senate. Um, And specifically leaving when I did after the 2016 elections um, made things feel like they were just horrifically off track. Um, And I think that what I wanted to do was find a way to bring some resolution to the conflict that I was experiencing between the Senate as I had come to expect it and the Senate as I experienced it when working there. Um, I I knew that the filibuster was a common feature of American politics. I knew that top-down leadership control was what the Senate had come to feature, Uh, but I didn't know why. And when you ask around, people lean on sort of circular answers about, you know, it being this way because this is the way the Senate decided it should be. You know, the wisdom of the ages, um, senators over time making it this way. And those answers just didn't really sit well with me, and I wanted to investigate them. And so that process of asking those questions, chasing down those answers, is what led to this book.
0: For those of us who are not Senate procedural nerds, what exactly is the filibuster? And you spend a lot of time in the book talking about how it changed over time. Could we maybe start there with just an overview of what it started out as and what it has become?
1: Yeah, sure. So in the beginning, there was no filibuster. Um, the Senate, as originally created, did not have a filibuster and in, in fact was designed to not encourage uh, obstructionist debate. Uh, I want to be clear that you know extended debate, um, thoughtful debate, uh, unstructured debate—all these things were intended in the original Senate. But the idea of using debate to obstruct or block a bill. Uh, with any frequency was not contemplated. Not only was it not contemplated, the framers made clear that they did not want this to happen. Um, Jefferson's original manual of of congressional procedure uh, had a whole section on order and debate and explained that uh, senators should not debate superfluously or beside the question. Um, And the Senate contained rules to shut off debate uh, if it if it started taking so long. Uh, so this was the clear intent of the framers was to you know, have a thoughtful chamber where people could have their say where the minority on any issue would have a platform to make their views known, try to persuade people to their side. But at the end of the day, when reasonable senators could kind of agree that this debate had run its course, uh, it was supposed to be able to end debate and move quickly to an up or down vote at a majority threshold. Um, the supermajority didn't come till much later. I'm sure we'll get into that. So then uh, after all the framers had passed away, John Calhoun in the middle of the 19th century uh, really starts to innovate the modern filibuster as we know it. There were some efforts at obstruction before him. Um, Some historians argue that the first filibuster as we know it took place before Calhoun arrived. But what Calhoun did that was truly innovative was to marry the tactics of obstruction in Congress to the principle of minority rights. Uh, And he took Madison's protections for minority rights, which Madison definitely did believe in, but Calhoun blew them up way out of proportion, past anything Madison ever would have imagined. So, in this era, in sort of the 1830s, 1840s, uh, and, and a little bit into the 1850s, uh, the filibuster emerged. And it was sort of what we would associate with the Gibby Stewart type filibuster, where senators like Calhoun would take to the Senate floor, uh, coordinate with other senators to sort of pass the baton, and they would debate at length to block a bill that they opposed. Now, and
0: be on the Senate
1: floor. Right, right. Physically on the floor talking to for the purpose of delay. Like they had to be there to make the delay happen. Um, what's really important to emphasize at this point is that, first of all, it didn't have a name yet. This, this new tool was so alien to the Senate that it actually took several years after Calhoun passed away for the term filibuster to emerge sometime in the 1850s, 1860s. So this was a new thing. Nobody was sure what to call it. Um, and it was definitely new to the Senate. But
0: I think you mentioned that it somehow relates to pirates.
1: Yes, that's right. Well, there's a Dutch term. I'm, I do not speak Dutch. I'm going to mispronounce it. But, Regie um, uh, it's, Booter, it's a Dutch term for piracy. There was a lot of piracy going on uh, in the Gulf at the time. Um, Americans were involved. What did you say?
0: Actual piracy.
1: Actual piracy, yes. Pirates in boats, um, stealing stuff, taking over land. Um, There's piracy off the coast of Louisiana. Uh, It was, you know, in the news uh, at the time, it was was a hot topic of of debate. There was legislation addressing it. So this word, um, and then the Dutch... Word that I horribly mispronounced, I think, loosely translates to freebooter, Uh, and so it was sort of uh, an amalgam of these uh, words that led to the term filibuster. Um, But even in the beginning, it's sort of important to to note that the connotations were sort of you know um, were were piracy. It was it was hijacking. It was uh, you know illegality. And so, you know, even in its inception, the whole concept was this idea of something new coming into the institution to sort of hijack it and, and mess with the rules. Um, so, but, but in this era, and all through the 19th century, it's really important to emphasize that this was a tool that could delay bills, but could almost never stop them altogether. And the ethic was still very strong within the Senate that the majority should prevail at the end of the day. Um, There's one filibuster that I write about in the late 1840s over a bill to organize organize the Oregon Territory um, where the anti-slavery or the pro-slavery forces led by Calhoun uh, were filibustering this bill because the Oregon Territory was going to outlaw slavery. At one point, so the filibuster was going on. It was, you know, intense. um, But at one point, Calhoun's allies turned to him and they say, it's time for us to fold. The other side has proven they have a majority for this bill. We've made our point. One of the senators says it would be more in keeping with the the ethic of the Senate um, to now fold our tents, let the majority have their way. This frustrated Calhoun, but he was definitely in the minority in thinking that the minority should be able to stop whatever the majority wanted to do. So that continued all the way up through the 19th century. The filibuster could delay, but it could not block or stop bills. And definitely not force them to clear any kind of a supermajority threshold. The majority for the threshold for passage in the Senate remained a majority all the way into the 20th century.
0: And Adam, how, just to jump in here for a second, you know, how different is that from what we see today? I mean, I cover the Senate, and obviously a 60 vote threshold is common for most legislation to clear those procedural hurdles. So, you know, was this like a really marked difference back then?
1: Yeah, it's a huge difference. I mean, it's, it's night and day. Um, bills just simply didn't have to clear supermajority thresholds uh, from the time the Senate was created all the way up through the early 20th century. It was alien to the Senate that this would ever happen. Um, to be clear, Calhoun wanted it to happen. Um, he wrote about it extensively. He, uh, after he died, he published uh, a tract called Disquisition on Government. And in that tract, he made very clear that he believed that a minority faction should be able to exercise veto power over anything the federal government wanted to do. And just I just wanna go back to Madison for a second because Madison is often cited as sort of the, the keeper of minority protections. And that is very true. And Madison expresses the importance of minority protections in his writing, but he's often cherry picked uh, in defense of minority rights. Because if you read what he wrote and his extensive correspondence, and he was consistent on this from the time of the Constitutional Convention until he passed away in the 1830s, he believed that the protection for the minority was this complicated system of government that he'd created with all of these checks and balances with legislative executive judicial branches. But within that system, every decision point was supposed to be majority rule. And even some of the most famous Madison quotations in favor of minority rights, like Federalist Number 10, is what's often cited. If you read the whole thing, he goes on, after he explains that the minority should always have a role in the process, he goes on to explain that once the minority had had their say, if they failed to persuade a majority to their side, the majority should rule. In Federalist 10, he talks about majority rule as the Republican principle. Uh, so this was central. Madison believed the minority should be able to talk, should be able to try to persuade, should have the Senate floor as their as their venue to make themselves known. But if they failed, if they couldn't persuade a majority to come to their side, at the end of the day, bills came up, got a majority vote, and the Senate would just move on. Calhoun had a different view. Calhoun believed that if the, if the minority could not be assuaged, the minority should have its way. The minority should be able to stop bill from passing and so to your question i think that is the dynamic that we see in the senate today and you can argue as i do in the book that the senate struggled for two centuries between these two visions of a madisonian vision where debate should be thoughtful extended but ultimately majority rule and calhoun's vision where the senate should be a place where the minority can block everything it wanted to if it so chose and the senate that, that i worked in that you cover today that fits Calhoun's view. It is a Senate where if a minority of 41 senators who could represent as little as 11% of the population decide they do not favor a bill, they can block it cold turkey uh, and and stop it from passing.
0: One of the pieces of this history that you focus on a lot is the role that civil rights legislation played in the development of the filibuster. How are those two dynamics intertwined in the Senate in the post-Calhoun era?
1: Well, so, the oppression of black Americans at first, the, the, uh, maintenance of slavery, this maintenance of slavery, the preservation of slavery against the abolitionist movement. And then later the maintenance of Jim Crow. Um, that was the only issue that provided enough motivation for senators to make these procedural innovations and create the filibuster. Um, there was no other issue that encountered the filibuster as consistently as civil rights. And in fact, from the time of the end of Reconstruction in 1877 until 1964 when the first filibuster against the Civil Rights Bill was finally broken. During that 87-year period, the only issue that was consistently and every time stopped by the filibuster was civil rights. There were occasionally filibusters against other issues that would delay them for a short period of time, uh, but all of those other issues eventually passed you know, they were amended, there was a compromise reached. something happened, or they even passed as is in some cases. The only bills that were stopped conclusively by the filibuster and prevented from passing were civil rights bills. And I think the reason for that is that Southern white supremacists, segregationist senators who at this time were members of the Democratic Party um, were highly motivated. Uh, it takes motivation to make innovation. Um, and they're it, their overriding desire, I mean, for many of these folks, their reason for being in politics, their reason for exercising power was maintaining Jim Crow, maintaining a Southern way of life. Uh, and it was that extreme motivation that drove them to create the procedural innovations that led to the filibusters we know it today.
0: Adam, the parties looked really different then than they do now. There were more regional differences. Uh, what were sort of the Alignments at that time between the democrats and the republicans and the southern democrats what did those factions look like and how did that influence what we were seeing with the filibuster
1: yeah so this is really important because it's a, it's tells you a lot about why the filibuster is uh, the effect that it has on the senate is so different today um back then parties were did not march in lockstep um, you know, this ever since the rise of the two-party system in the 19th century, the Senate was organized by party, um, people caucused together, um, but there, was, there were no party leaders, um, you know, the Constitution creates the position of the Speaker of the House, um, it gives it a lot of power in the House rules, but in the Senate, there were never supposed to be any leaders, um, it was created as a leaderless institution, and the positions of majority and minority leader were not created until the 1920s, so it was supposed to be a free-flowing, open uh, body where people crossed the aisle frequently, um, and that is what happened. So, you know, in in you can sort of start by flipping the roles of the parties as we know them today as a starting point, uh, in the sense that the most conservative members of the Senate were Democrats at the time. Um, all of the Southern senators were Democrats. Um, This was back in the days of the solid South, um, pre-civil rights um, and uh, pre-1948 when the the Democratic Convention, when um, they decided to embrace a stronger civil rights platform and and Strom Thurmond led the Dixiecrat walkout. So uh, at this time, the core of of the conservative movement of conservative life in America resided in the Democratic Party. Um, Republicans um, would often uh, cross the aisle, but... the issue of civil rights specifically, you had tremendous amount of cross-party pollination. Um, Republicans in many cases were leaders on civil rights. Um, that continued on and off all the way up through the 1950s. Uh, you know, it's, I did not expect this to happen when I started my research, but Richard Nixon emerged as sort of a weird hero type role in the book because before he became Mr. White Backlash in the 1960s, um, he was actually an extremely aggressive champion of civil rights. Uh, the Eisenhower administration, arguably had a better record on civil rights than the Truman administration or even the uh, Roosevelt administration. Um, Eisenhower desegregated the District of Columbia. Um, Truman desegre- gave the order to desegregate the armed forces, but uh, but he didn't do anything to enforce it and Eisenhower enforced it. In, in the 1956 election, Eisenhower was endorsed by the NAACP, uh, by Adam Clayton Powell, a Congressman from Harlem who crossed over to endorse Eisenhower. And there's literally an episode in The 1956 election where Richard Nixon is campaigning in Harlem with Adam Clayton Powell demanding the reform of the filibuster in order to pass a strong civil rights bill. So, you know, that episode. I mean, look, Nixon was was a uh, was a McCarthyite. There were other many other things wrong with him, even then, but it just goes to show how fluid the parties were, uh, how civil rights was not a democratic issue um, as recently as the late 1950s. And, and in general, just how, uh, how much more cross-pollination there were between the parties versus what we, what we know today.
0: Just on Nixon, there was an interesting anecdote in the book about him presiding over the Senate and establishing this rule. I had never heard about that. Um, you know, like, could you tell us a little bit about sort of his role in the filibuster?
1: yeah so um, after the thousand nine hundred and fifty six campaign, you know Eisenhower campaigned pretty hard on civil rights and the, during the year one thousand nine hundred and fifty six in Congress, Eisenhower had sent up a very strong civil rights bill to Congress, uh, and Lyndon Johnson, working with Southern Democrats, um, basically stuck it in in committee, which was run by uh, James Eastland, who was a horrible segregationist and and killed it in committee so Eisenhower wins reelection in a massive landslide. Republicans have tremendous momentum. And they decide to use a lot of that momentum to try to wage a campaign to reform or get rid of the filibuster in order to pass that strong civil rights bill. And their point man for this effort is Richard Nixon. And so Nixon forms an alliance with the leading liberals in the Senate, uh, people like Hubert Humphrey, uh, who would later be his opponent in 1968, you know, ardent, ardent new deal liberal, um, Paul Douglas, uh, you know, and, 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 they take this alliance and they, they hatch a plan on the first day of the senate convening uh, in january of 1957 that nixon as the vice president will preside over the senate and will issue a ruling stating that the senate has the right to change its rules by a simple majority vote the reason this is important and necessary is that richard russell who's sort of seen as a uh, you know hero of the senate he's got an office building named after him A horrible racist and ter- and white supremacist um the building should be renamed we can talk about that later but richard russell had sort of run circles around reformers in previous years uh and in so doing had solidified his control of the rule that allowed a filibuster to raise the threshold for passage to supermajority threshold i'm getting into the weeds here but but basically you know you had richard russell and lyndon johnson uh in in defense of the filibuster. And you had Richard Nixon and Senate liberals aggressively trying to reform this, the filibuster in order to pass civil rights. So they waged this effort in January of 1957. Nixon is in the presider's chair. He hands down this ruling. Um, and then Johnson basically proceeds to outmaneuver them. Um, he deploys a tremendous amount of pressure, um, threats, uh, years later, a senator would go to the Senate floor and enter memos worth of evidence of all of the things that Johnson used to threaten senators uh, to make sure that they did not side with Nixon and the liberal reformers. Uh, and through this effort, the liberals come up about 13 votes short. Um, Johnson wins the fight and the filibuster is maintained. The irony of this is that, you know, Johnson's reputation as a master of the Senate um, and that Robert Carroll book, which is wonderful and hugely influential to, to my research, a lot of that is based on his, uh, passage of the Civil Rights Bill in 1957, what he did during that passage was to basically gut the Civil Rights Bill. He took the strong bill that Eisenhower had sent up, which was very similar in its original form to the bill that would be passed in 1964. Uh, Johnson gutted that bill so that it was completely toothless and you know some civil rights leaders at the end thought it wasn't even worth passing or supporting. Johnson gutted it to make it acceptable to the Southerners um, and is hailed as a hero for, for doing that. The only reason, though, that he had to make it acceptable to the Southerners, was that he had beaten Nixon in his effort to reform the filibuster. Uh, If Nixon and the liberals had succeeded in their effort in January, uh, the threshold for passing the bill might have been lowered to a simple majority, and they might have passed the strong Eisenhower civil rights bill. Uh, And I see this as one of those moments in history where it's, you can, you know, there's a lot of what ifs and how could history be different if a Republican administration, a popular Republican president in Dwight Eisenhower had been the administration that passed a massive civil rights bill um, over the opposition of Lyndon Johnson and the Southerners. You could see history going in a lot of different directions uh, from that point.
0: So your book talks about the procedure, the the filibuster and the debate over it, but also about the people who are in control and calling the shots, Um, and in particular, go into a lot of depth about Russell and Lyndon Johnson. What was their relationship like and why was that crucial to leaders, to Johnson emerging as a really all-powerful controlling leader in the Senate?
1: So Lyndon Johnson owed everything he had in his career to Richard Russell. Um, Johnson had this tendency, documented by Caro um, and others, of of ingratiating himself with powerful men. Uh, before he was in the Senate, he was in the House And Sam Rayburn was the speaker of the house and Johnson became like a surrogate son to to Rayburn um, who was a bachelor alone and, you know, did not have children of his own. Um, And so then Johnson, when he got to the Senate, basically did the same thing to Richard Russell, um, ingratiated himself with Russell. Russell at this time was, was, by all accounts, the most powerful Senate in the chamber in either party. Um, back to the point about there being no leaders, Russell never held any formal leadership role. Um, he had you know, committee spots, he served on the Armed Services Committee and things like that, but he simply had power based on his encyclopedic knowledge of floor procedure and his ability to bring coalitions together and often uh, bring people together for the purpose of blocking civil rights bills. He got to the Senate in the 1930s, uh, and over the next 40 years, or so that he was in the Senate, he, Russell ran more filibusters against civil rights than, than any other Senator. He was an avowed white supremacist. Um, I think a lot of accounts sort of downplay this fact about him as if it was sort of a side fact, but it's not, it was by his own account, the driving motivation behind everything that he did. Um, he stated, uh, that any Southern white man worth his salt should give his all to white supremacy. Um, he, uh, sponsored a bill to try to move black people out of the South uh, because he said he wanted other states to share in their race problem. So he's not a good guy. Um, But he mentored Johnson from the moment Johnson arrived in the Senate. And Johnson, for his part, sort of kissed up to to Russell. Um, Johnson's maiden speech was uh, an elaborate defense of the filibuster. This was in 1949 when he arrived in the Senate. Uh, he stated that if he could give any freedom to the communist countries behind the Iron Curtain, the one freedom that Johnson would bestow was the right to unlimited debate in their legislative chambers. I, I don't know if that's what um, the company, the countries behind the Iron Curtain would want, but uh, that's what Johnson did. But he, he was doing it to play to Russell and the Southerners. Um, he, he informed Russell, he sent the speech to Russell ahead of time, um, Russell made sure that all the Southerners were on the floor to hear it. And after he gave this speech, he was surrounded and congratulated by all of the Southern senators. Johnson, as a Texan, you know, Texas is always sort of on the periphery of the Southern block, but Johnson wanted to align himself directly with with Russell and the Southerners because he knew that's where the power lay. So once Johnson formed this close relationship with Russell, Russell backed Johnson's ascent into leadership. Um, Without his support, without Russell's support, Johnson never would have been uh, first minority and then and then majority leader. Um, and then this gets complicated because, because, you know, over time their interests start to diverge and it's sort of a, you know, a teacher-student uh, thing where eventually Johnson um, is forced to confront Russell uh, on the issue, civil rights, that Russell cares most and, and defeat him on it.
0: And what is motivating Johnson at this point in time? I mean, did he want to be in the White House the minute he stepped in the Senate?
1: Yes. Power. I mean, everything about Johnson was power. And um, you know, what's interesting about it is that he wasn't at all persuaded or he wasn't at all sure that becoming majority leader was a path to power. Um, because the position was so weak at the time, he was skeptical that that it was worth it for him. Um, you know, he had, he had been there at, when he arrived in the Senate. Uh, Scott Lucas was the majority leader and Johnson sat there in 1949 in this one episode, I in the book, where Russell just absolutely humiliated Scott Lucas in front of the entire Senate, um, and made very clear that the majority leader had only as much leash as Russell chose to give him to give to give him. So you know, history was was littered with the political corpses of majority leaders who were humiliated because the position had no power. And so you know, Scott Lucas was trying to lead the Senate in a direction that Russell didn't want it to go, and so Russell cut him off at the knees. So Johnson, he, he sort of had a long dark night of the soul. Um, before deciding that he would take the majority leader's position. Um, but Russell didn't want it because it wasn't powerful. And so, But it was only with his backing that Johnson was able to get it. The other important thing about Russell's backing is that once Johnson got into the position, he started to make changes that uh, accrued power, real power for the first time into the majority leader's role. That started with inserting the majority leader into committee selection. You know, as you know full well, what members of Congress care about most. One of the things they care about most, especially back when committees were more powerful, was committee assignments. Um, it's the the coin of the of the realm. But the but it used to be on autopilot, totally based on seniority. Whoever the senior most senator was who wanted a committee spot got it. The majority leader had nothing to do with it. Um, it was only because of Russell's backing that Johnson was able to for, for the first time insert the majority leader into the role of having uh, help make committee selections. That is the very beginning of what gave the position of majority leader power. Uh, and so even once Johnson was in the position of majority leader, he was still completely reliant on Russell's backing and the backing of the Southern Bloc uh, to continue to wield, wield this power.
0: Then as now, fundraising is always a big part of the equation. How was Johnson um, pioneering in that front?
1: Yeah, so Johnson um, and his his bag man uh, Bobby Baker, who um, was before he went to jail. Yes, before he went to jail for on on uh, campaign finance um, charges, uh, Baker would deliver what what he and Johnson called "boodles," um, <laughs> which was literally cash in a bag. Um, I mean, this was back in the day when you know campaign finance laws. all intents and purposes, you know, didn't exist. There was no FEC. It was a loose collection of of regulations. And Johnson, being from Texas, and and enthusiastically backed by oil interests in Texas, basically had an unlimited uh, spigot of campaign funds. Every time he needed to, you know, help persuade a senator to get where he wanted, he would dispatch one of his aides to fly somewhere to meet uh, a, you know, often an associate of, of the oil interests who would literally hand over an envelope or a bag full of cash. Johnson's aide would come back to Washington and give the cash to Johnson, and then Johnson would physically hand it out to senators. There's one incident in the book um, where Johnson sends Bobby, and Bobby Baker was usually the conduit. Um, Baker, uh, there's one incident in the book where Johnson sends Baker up to New Hampshire um, to for a senator whose vote he needed he, and he says you know i think it was fifteen thousand dollars he says here's uh fifteen thousand dollars throw this in the kitty uh and let Lyndon let him know that Lyndon sent it so um, money was a big tool um, there, there's a similar i don't want to say that you know the way that campaign committees operate today is exactly like that but it's a little similar um, you know the each side uh controls what's called a, a campaign committee um, which is sort of the, the party's uh, nerve center of campaigns. So there's one for the Senate, one for the House, and one for um, each party. Um, those committees uh, plug candidates into fundraising networks. Um, they advise them on which kind of consultants to pick. You know, the average Senate campaign today costs around $10 million, probably more by now. Um, so, you know, figuring out how to raise that sum is impossible without some kind of institutional support. Um, so the leaders direct those operations and help candidates either get funds directly um, or help candidates figure out how to plug into the right fundraising networks to get money themselves. And then outside those formal campaign structures, there is the uh, wild, wild west of, um, you know, C4s and politically uh, aligned, supposedly issue-based groups that are mainly focused on um, electing and defeating candidates, even though legally they say they're not. Um, And those groups have can raise unlimited funds. And the leaders, while they're officially barred from coordinating with them, that legal prohibition is paper thin. Um, These groups are often run by former aides to the leaders themselves, who know exactly what the leaders want. uh, And the leaders can can direct, um, you know, even if not officially um, those massive um, sums of money that those groups control. So it is we've, we've evolved past the days of Bobby Baker and Lyndon Johnson literally handing senators cash. Um, but politics is a very expensive business and the leaders still fundamentally control a, a massive infrastructure that determines uh, how funds get allocated among candidates and that is still a very powerful tool of control.
0: And before we leave LBJ behind, I love the anecdote about when he actually intercepts the bill as it's being walked over from the House to the Senate. I mean, it's shocking that things are still physically walked over in Congress. Can you like lay the set the scene for us um, with this sort of as an example of just how masterful he was at manipulating what was going on?
1: Yes. So this this is a yes one of my favorite anecdotes too. So this is the 1956 bill that I mentioned that, that Eisenhower sent sent up to Congress. It was a very strong civil rights bill. So it passed the House. And like you said, when a bill passes the House, uh, it is sent to the Senate as a message. And and literally what that involves is a clerk physically walking over a paper copy from the House side of the Capitol uh, over to the Senate side. And once it arrives, the Senate, the rules are designed to let the Senate and House operate independently. But one thing the rules force you to do is if something arrives from the other chamber, you have to stop what you're doing and deal with it in some form or fashion. So often that means referring the bill to the committee. So... In this case, the liberals um, knew that as soon as this bill arrived from the House, what Johnson was going to do was refer it to the Judiciary Committee, which at the time was controlled by Jim Eastland of Mississippi, who was a horrible segregationist senator. He bragged that he had special pockets put in his pants, which was where he stuck civil rights bills to keep them from ever seeing the light of day. So liberals knew that as soon as this bill arrived, Johnson would refer it instantaneously to Eastland's committee, and it would never see the light of day. So what they did, but if you have a senator on the floor, when the bill arrives, they can object to it being referred to committee and then get it placed on the calendar where later on a senator could call it up for a vote. But you have to be there in that instant when the bill physically arrived. And this was before the days of emails and, you know, so you don't know exactly when it's going to happen. So what the liberals did was they stationed one senator on the floor, Herbert Lehman of New York, uh, to wait there as a sentry and make sure the bill didn't slip past. And then another senator, Paul Douglas of Illinois, went over to the House when he knew that the bill had passed to physically escort the person who was walking the bill over. But there was a spy in their ranks and someone tipped Johnson off to the fact that they had this plan. And so Johnson, who was very close still with the Speaker of the House, Sam Rayburn, His mentor that i mentioned before johnson called rayburn up rayburn got the bill printed faster than normal and then shuttled out a side door because he knew douglas was coming over so douglas gets there he goes to the clerk of the house and the clerks are all shuffling papers and pretending they don't know where the bill is it takes douglas a minute but he realized he's been duped and so he runs out of the house chamber physically running across the capitol gets back to the senate but he's too late Herbert Lehman, their sentry, had been briefly detained off of the Senate floor. No one to this day knows exactly how, but their sentry had been detained, the bill was introduced, and it had already been referred to committee. To make sure this happened fast, Lyndon Johnson put a senator from Alabama, who was known as the South's fastest talker, in the presider's chair to make sure he could, you know, when when the bill arrives, you have to read a bunch of stuff, and it takes a minute or two. So to compress the time, they made sure they had their fastest talker from the South, which is, you know, I don't know how fast that actually is. But... Uh, so, so Douglas, the Illinois liberal, bursts into the chamber uh, and the, the, the senator in the chair just looks up him and says, uh, Senator Douglas, you know, we operate in accordance with the time-honored procedures of the Senate here. And Douglas slinks off the floor. He goes to the elevator. Back this, back when they still had, you know, you had to call the elevator, the elevator operator. He, he calls the elevator and he mutters to an aide, uh, let's just pretend I'm a senator.
0: So eventually we get to the point where you described it as the sanitized filibuster. It's no longer quite so interlinked with civil rights legislation. What what happened to get us to that point? And what effect does it have that the filibuster is no longer sort of tainted by this?
1: So I'll, I'll start there actually. So the effect is that the filibuster today is far more powerful and also much more user friendly than it ever has before, which is a dangerous combination. Um you know, we talked before about the motivation it took to wage a filibuster that's because it took a lot of effort you had to you had to coordinate you know it couldn't just be one person um they're famous filibusters, you know, but even those are you know thirteen hours long, which means you wait a day and they're over to really launch a filibuster you had to coordinate among you know a dozen or more senators to keep going around the clock um and and you know stall it for weeks or months to force the other side to prevail so you know, it was only civil rights that, that made the Southerners have enough passion for the oppression of Black Americans that, that they were able to do it. Um, what we have now is a filibuster where any single senator can send an email to the cloakroom, which is sort of the, the nerve center of each party on the Senate floor, letting them know that they have an objection to the bill. What that single email, it could be a, it could be a hallway conversation, it could be a phone call, all you have to do is register an objection from one senator's office. Once that's done, the threshold for passage of a bill goes from the simple majority, where the rules technically still state it is today, um, to a supermajority, because that objection places this procedural hurdle called cloture uh, in front of that final passage vote, which is still a majority. Most bills cannot clear that hurdle, so they fail and they never get to that final passage vote. Um, how we got from A to B, how we got from the Jimmy Stewart talking filibuster um, to this silent but deadly um, version of the filibuster, is a complicated story. It starts in 1917 when, um, in order to end filibusters, a rule was introduced called Rule 22 um, that put this supermajority hurdle on the books for the first time. So this was the first time in Senate history that a supermajority hurdle for regular legislation had ever existed. Prior to that, it only existed for things like impeachment uh, and constitutional amendments. So the irony is that when they created it in 1917, the explicit purpose of this rule was to be able to end debate and move to that simple majority vote. Um, It was put on the books in response to a progressive filibuster, an anti-war filibuster against President Wilson's effort to arm American merchant ships um, by a senator named Fighting Bob Follette of Wisconsin. Fighting Bob, correctly, uh, stated that, you know, Wilson was trying, this was a backdoor entry into war, so he filibustered the bill, um, and there was a huge public outcry. This was when Wilson issued his famous statement calling uh, the filibustering senators a small group of willful men, um, and the Senate quickly reconvened a few days later and created this rule called Rule 22, um, and its explicit purpose, as was stated at the time, was to, quote, terminate successful filibustering. The idea was that even though it was a supermajority, that reasonable senators, whether they supported or opposed the issue at hand, would come together and say, All right, guys, that's enough. We've debated this for long enough. It's clear that we've just moved on to obstruction now. So we're gonna vote not to pass the bill, but to end debate so that the bill can then come up for a simple majority vote. The idea was that reasonable senators is sort of I a, a know it when I see it kind of deal, you know, reasonable senators would come together and end debate when it became obstructionist southerners uh started to apply that threshold again only to civil rights bills and they started talking up this procedural vote and elevating it into this lofty principled vote uh and th- they reached back to calhoun and his you know defense of minority rights and the southerners started saying that you can't vote against cloture uh, that's that's the rule by the way it's called cloture and that the etymology of that is closure um As in bringing the debate to an end. And so Southerners said, you know, you can't vote for closure. You can't vote to end this debate because you would be infringing on our rights of unlimited debate. You would be infringing on minority rights in the Senate. And, you know, we hear a lot of this similar rhetoric today. Um, But this was invented. This was invented for the purpose of blocking civil rights bills. So that was when it started to uh, be able to, you know, the filibuster could be deployed to set a super majority but still only mainly against civil rights and very infrequently. How you get from there to today is sort of a weird uh, backdoor backsliding story of um, the, the workload of the Senate getting dramatically in- increased over as the size of the government grew um, and the number of you know agencies the Senate needed to fund. And basically leaders started needing new, more efficient ways to manage the floor. Um, and so what they started to do was before they would bring a bill to the, it used to be the case that the majority would bring a bill to the floor. And if it was going to be a filibuster, they would know when they brought it to the floor and someone filibustered it. Now majority leaders couldn't afford to waste that time. And they couldn't afford to get stuck in a filibuster um, if they brought a bill to the floor. So they started sending what are known as hotlines, which is basically, uh, today it's today it's an email. I say sent because today the hotline goes around as an email, but, you know, Earlier, it would be phone calls or whatever, but basically, the majority leaders would ca- would canvass the caucus and ask, "Does anybody have an objection?" Um, because if someone had an objection, they might not bring the bill to the floor, knowing that it would face a filibuster. Um, and it's that canvas, it's that hotline, um, that provides the opportunity for one senator to raise their hand and say, "I have an objection to this bill." Um, and you can sort of fast forward several decades, and, and today, what that means is. When one senator says I object to this bill, that automatically raises the threshold from the simple majority to the supermajority. Because what that one senator is saying is, if you're going to pass this bill, you are, I am going to force you to invoke cloture. I'm going to force you to invoke that rule that requires a supermajority of senators to end debate before we can move on to the final vote on a bill. And basically, every single bill, you know, not just major bills, but routine pieces of business, today in the Senate face that threshold
0: one of the things that's happened recently is that democrats in georgia won two runoff races that will once the Biden administration has been inaugurated mean that they control the chamber by the slimmest of majorities, a 50-50 chamber with Vice President-elect Harris able to break a tie. And that raises the possibility that Democrats could choose to change the chamber's rules. Uh, I know that you have some ideas in the book that you lay forward. Um, how would you fix the Senate and do you think that's something that is likely in the next few months?
1: Well. I think to fix the Senate, you have to make it a place where bills that are urgently needed can pass again. Uh, You know, there's a lot of different approaches to reform. I personally would be open to many different ways to do this. But fundamentally, you have to get to a place where it only takes a majority to pass a bill. That, That majority threshold could be something that is arrived at after a talking filibuster. Um, in fact, lowering it to a majority threshold would probably revive the use of talking filibusters. I have no problem with that personally. I think you know, the Senate floor is supposed to be a place where senators debate uh, and they argue their case. And I think it would be great to revive that spirit of persuasion and have senators have to actually go to the floor and explain why they're filibustering a bill. Um, that's the other thing about the new filibuster is they send the email to the cloakroom where they make the phone call and they never have to explain themselves if they don't want to. So under current rules, senators can filibuster a bill without ever explaining why. So, but I think that the fundamental thing is we have to focus in on what is the fundamental purpose of the Senate. You know, the rules exist to serve some purpose and it is a chamber that is supposed to be the place that generates thoughtful policy solutions to the challenges that we face as a country. It is not designed to filibuster, it is not designed uh, to do any you know, secondary thing, it is designed to produce thoughtful policy outcomes. And once its rules no longer serve that fundamental purpose, it's time for them to be reformed. Um, as we've talked about here, for most of its history, the Senate was a majority rule body. You saw plenty of bipartisanship during that time. Um, you know, One of the dynamics that I think is underappreciated is that you know, once a bill demonstrates that it has a majority to pass and is going to pass, a lot of people come off the sidelines uh, and start negotiating. So, you know, that was ha- what happened with the Calhoun's uh, Oregon bill in the 1840s. It's what happened with like the Bush tax cuts in 2011 where Democrats uh, filibustered it. Um, and this was done under reconciliation, so they only needed a majority. But. Once it was clear that the bill had a majority, a bunch of Democrats jumped on board and the vote count got up to like 63. So, you know, once you have trains leaving the station legislatively, you, once you have gears turning, um, you have the potential for reviving bipartisan action, but you have to have action. Um, you have to take the option off the table for the minority and the party out of power to simply sit on their hands and block the majority in order to make them look bad. Um, You know, getting back to the framers for a second, they explained in explicit terms that this was what they feared and why they wanted the Senate to be a majority rule body. They feared what they called a pertinacious minority, um, having the temptation to just by obstructing block the majority from acting, you know. Political scientists have written books and reams of papers about how we live in a polarized environment now, and how our political environment is dominated by something called negative partisanship, which is essentially the phenomenon that, you know, you succeed by making the other side fail. Um, these are structural forces at work, and they drive senators to want to oppose anything the majority does. We have to remove that blockage. Um, I think what you'll see is bills start passing again. I, I also want to be clear that I don't think that we should do this to empower leadership. I think this is important to be done in concert with other reforms, uh, preferably reforms that make it easier for rank and file senators to bring bills to the floor. Um, I think that uh, you know what your core goal is to return the Senate floor to a place where there is an open, free-flowing debate uh, that's unpredictable. You don't know who's going to get a vote on what, um, but that's a good thing. Um, So let's restore debate to the Senate, uh, and let's also make the Senate a place that is capable of passing bills and responding to the policy challenges that we face today, which are substantial.
0: Adam, you mentioned reconciliation, which is something people are talking a lot about right now because in control of the majority, Democrats will be able to try and pass legislation with reconciliation. You just need a simple majority when that bill is connected in some way to the budget. Um, you suggest that that's not a sufficient avenue for passing legislation. Why not? If it's, if it's just a simple majority, why isn't that good enough?
1: Yeah. Well, there's, there's two main reasons. One is, um, the most important one, is that uh, reconciliation automatically excludes certain categories of legislation from being able to be used on its track. So for example, any sort of civil rights reform, uh, democracy reforms like automatic voter registration, uh, something like DC statehood are off the table for reconciliation. You simply, because they have no primary budgetary connection, uh, you simply cannot use reconciliation to pass them. So off the bat, when you use reconciliation, you're excluding entire categories of issues that are absolutely critical, uh, I believe, and that must pass. Um, So that's one reason. Uh, And I would also throw a lot of uh, legislation to address climate change will fall into that excluded category. Um, the other thing about reconciliation is it's, it's not as easy as, as people make it out to be. Um, it is an incredibly complicated process to make forcing, you know, it's not supposed to be used this way. So, forcing legislation to comply with its very complicated and restrictive rules leads to poorly designed legislation. And, ha- you know, everything is subject to rule by the parliamentarian. So, you know, you could get 70% of the way through the process and then have the parliamentarian strike down some key provision of, of the bill. And at that point, you're forced to either abandon it or actually go nuclear and change the reconciliation rules themselves, which is sort of tantamount to going nuclear anyway, because if you expand the reconciliation track, um, you know it's just gonna be the track that everybody uses for everything. So, and then there's actually one other reason, which is that I think reconciliation is often sort of seen as a steam valve for, for people who are concerned about the health of the Senate uh, as an institution. And I think this is um, a counterproductive effort if you are concerned with the health of the institution. You know, what we've seen in recent years is a trend, a dramatic trend towards leadership-driven, top-down mega-packages. You know, we only fund the government now pretty much through these giant um, omnibus bills. And I think if you start using reconciliation, what you're gonna see is a process where leadership drives the government funding track And then leadership also starts driving basically sort of a legislative omnibus. And so what's going to happen is, you know, everything that has to pass in the Congress is going to get jammed into some giant uh, leadership negotiated reconciliation package. This bill will have no oversight. Um, It will have no committee involvement. Uh, It will be an absolute bonanza for lobbyists. Um, So anybody who cares about good government and transparency should oppose this trend towards, you know, jamming everything into a giant reconciliation package and jamming it through the, the good thing about reforming the rules is once you do it if you lower the, the threshold you can go back to regular order um, you can you can restore the committee processes and say any bill that comes to the floor um, you know gets a majority vote so i fundamentally believe it is far healthier for the institution to return it to the framers vision of a thoughtful but majority rule body and then you know go back to regular order open the floor to amendments enable senators to bring bills up for a vote re-empower the committees um, but chasing reconciliation and you know getting to a dynamic where we're just passing things through these giant packages is is not not a great idea i think
0: With Senator Schumer um, recently being upgraded to the majority leader or incoming majority leader, we're going to have a new face of the Democratic Party in the Senate. Um, Obviously, you observed him for a long time with Senator Reid. I love the detail about Senator Reid having to tell Schumer to stop calling him after 9 p.m. What can we expect from Schumer as majority leader in your observation? And do you think it will change how the Senate functions at all?
1: I think Senator Schumer wants to be a you know, historic, consequential majority leader. Um, I think he wants to do big things. Uh, you know, Senator Schumer is extremely well-liked. Um, he he has every member of the caucus's cell phone number memorized. Um, and and I think he, you know, enjoys a lot of support within the caucus because of his the amount of personal attention he gives to senators. Um, but, you know, he is an am- ambitious person, and I mean that in a good way. I think he wants to pass big things. I think the challenge that he will face is that it will it will, you know, look, if if I'm wrong here and there's a, you know, massive outbreak of bipartisanship and we're passing big ambitious bills with 60 votes, you know, more power to to us, that's that's good for the country and I hope it happens. I I personally believe that is unlikely and what will probably happen is that, you know, relatively early on in 2021, Democrats, Senator Schumer and President Biden will face the reality that if they want to deliver on their big promises, if they want to do ambitious things, if they want to do big things, they're going to have to reform the rules uh, and probably, you know, eliminate or dramatically curtail the filibuster. So I think, you know, there may be a big reconciliation package early on, um, but I think that, you know, within, you know, sometime around the summer or the fall, uh, this conflict will come to a head and some important decisions will have to be made.
0: Was there anything that you found when you were researching the book that didn't make it into print? Any kind of fun tidbits or anecdotes that uh, only C-SPAN viewers can?
1: <laughs> well, I took out, it, it didn't end up uh, having a lot of uh, import to the narrative, but I, I t- you'll remember this fight. I took out um, talking about the debt ceiling crisis of, of 2011, um, which you know I, I had just uh, been elevated to... to communications director at the time. So it was my first um, big fight and it was very stressful (laughs) because, you know, you would put out a statement and then you'd watch the market, you know, go like this based on on what you were saying. And, um, you know, debt ceiling crises are sort of, you know, common now, but this was like the big one. Um, It led to the downgrade of America's credit for the first time um, and we nearly triggered a global financial (laughs) (laughs) collapse. So, you know, originally I'd, I'd written about um, you know that that was in the summer, and at the end of it, my wife and I went on vacation to visit some friends in California and I woke up one morning in a in a bed and breakfast in Point Reyes with my back seizing up into seizures um, because of the stress of that episode and my my wife had to load me into our rental car like putting the seat down horizontally and and drive us into San Francisco uh, with me you know prone in, in the back uh, there because of of the stress of the of that experience but Uh, That didn't make it into print, but there you go, C-SPAN viewers.
0: Well, I'm glad you are doing better now. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Anything else that you want to mention or just make sure people know as we head into another year of legislative dueling on the floor?
1: Yeah, I think the thing that I would love for people to take away from the book is that, you know, this is not the way the Senate was meant to be, and it is not the way that it has to be, Um, you know. It is an institution that is not particularly good at being self aware it it tends to uh, wrap itself in its own self mythologizing a lot and uh you know the book tries to deconstruct a lot of those myths and show that you know what we talk about as vaunted senate tradition uh, is really the you know the end results of a lot of narrow political power plays um, by by people motivated by by very narrow um political interests. And, you know, I think it's important for people to know that the Senate can be different. You know, it is the nerve center of our government. Every every bill that passes has to pass through it. Every nomination to the bench, the judicial bench, or to Biden's administration has to pass through it. Um, so it's critical, it's, if, it's, if it's dysfunctional, that dysfunction radiates out into the entire federal government. So, you know, this is not the way it has to be. We can make a choice to reform it and reform is actually in the grand scheme of things, not that hard. Uh, it's not like passing a constitutional amendment. It's not like removing a president from office. You know, it, it can be done, you know, the irony of all this is that it can be done with a simple majority vote. Um, you know, deciding to lower the threshold from a supermajority to a majority can be done with a majority vote. So if people want the Senate to be different, you know, they should call their senators and tell them that. um, Because it can be all it takes is 50 senators and a reasonable plan. uh, And the Senate can uh, become the Senate again.
0: You just have to persuade Senator Manchin.
1: That's right. That's a good place to start.
0: I actually thought it was interesting that you um, used one of the examples in your book of the mansion to me background checks legislation as a place where the filibuster had thwarted legislation that did have a majority support, just not a super majority. So it'll be interesting to see if that comes back this year.
1: That's right, and I think look, I, I have enormous respect for Senator Manchin um, and folks who have reservations, but I think you know there there are ways to do reform um, that can address a lot of the concerns that have been raised and make sure the Senate preserves what's essential and important about the Senate, um, but allows it to actually you know once again rise to the challenge of being a place that produces the the policy solutions that that we need today.
0: Adam, are there any kind of halfway measures? Is this something that you have to do wholesale, or could you just bring back the talking filibuster? I mean,
1: you could you know, I mean, it's, the, the problem is that, um, you know, reform, there, there's a long tradition of reform. And I, you know, I talk about this in the book. Um, and and the, the problem is that half measures have generally led to, you know, unexpected ways of of getting around them. Um, you know, one, one idea that's been introduced, um, Senator Harkin was a big proponent of this while he was in the Senate, was an idea of sort of a, a descending threshold Uh, over time, where the threshold to pass a bill starts at 60. And then once the minority has had a certain amount of time to debate, it gets ratcheted down to 55, and then down to 50, eventually, you know, the idea being that the minority's protection to debate, or, you know, their right to debate is protected. Um, I think that's, that's a great idea. Um, But I think fundamentally, reform really has to target the supermajority threshold. And if you if you come up short on that, um, you're gonna still enable an obstructionist minority to block what the majority wants to do. Um, this isn't about untrammelled majority rule. It's simply about uh, taking away that sort of ability to sabotage the process and, and deny the majority the ability to pass legislation simply for the purposes of making them look bad. Um, so, you know, there's, there's lots of different angles you can come at reform, um, but I think to be successful, it really does have to provide a pathway to a majority vote.
0: Adam, thank you so much for joining us
1: today. It was great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwords podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us
0: wherever you get your podcasts. Send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org.